The World Before Adam. The subtitle I've got there is A Biblical Explanation. It's a subject worthy of a little bit of our time and attention because contemporary research has determined by interviewing and talking to young people that one of the main reasons why young people, and this would be probably anybody under the age of 30, abandon God, don't believe in scripture, and view churches as just not worth their time, is because of confusion and doubt about Genesis chapter 1. It is a very significant factor in people's thinking, especially young people. And if you think about it, young people are in an environment that basically is going to create problems for them. In the classroom, kids are taught about uh, geology, which is all true stuff. They're taught about astronomy. They're taught about paleontology, which, you know, it's kind of a code word for dinosaurs. And the problem is that these scientific discoveries are taught in a setting that categorically rules out any concept of design or purpose to the material universe. That's just, we don't even consider that. And you'll probably see uh, kids being taught with uh, phrases like natural selection or random mutation, which promote a belief that reality is sort of a self-propelled machine that really doesn't have any purpose. So they're being taught stuff about, as I said, geology and astronomy and you know the origins of life, which presuppose or just go in it assuming that there is no way that there could be a designer. Therefore, we're going to look at all these in, you know, information tidbits this way. Now, a second problem, I put two problems up there. A second problem is created by Bible readers themselves, in my opinion. Second problem, a little more specifically related to God and his word to humanity, is a misunderstanding about what Genesis 1 says and what it does not say about the creation of the earth and the universe. Now, it is not God's purpose to use the Bible to explain the mechanics of how the earth and the universe were formed. That's not the purpose of Scripture. No, no, no. And if we try and make it the purpose of Scripture, we're going to end up in some very confused places. The Bible is not there to explain the Big Bang Theory or you know, whether things were formed from gaseous clouds and what is the concept behind planetary rotation or quantum mechanics or dinosaurs, sedimentary rock layers. Now, there's nothing wrong with exploring nature. There's nothing wrong with exploring nature or exploring history or exploring physics or biology. But none of these things, none of these things help us to understand or to fulfill God's purpose for our lives. That's what the Bible is 
all about? What is the purpose and the meaning of life? Not the mechanics of how it all came to be. I think God allows us to explore the natural world and we're pretty good at it. But that's not the Bible's purpose to explain these things. Now in Genesis 1, what God does is he tells us what we need to know about the created universe. What do we need to know? Well, the universe is his. He made it. He controls it. He sustains it. He brings forth life on the planet. And especially that he created it as a home for human beings, for men and women, to work out his plan for bringing many children into his family. To bring them into his family as fully formed spirit beings, blessed with the gift of eternal life. That's what the Bible's all about. Now, the popular Sunday school version of Genesis 1 is that the earth and the whole universe was created about 6,000 years ago in a matter of six days. However, it is very difficult to fit all those dinosaurs and fossils and sedimentary rock layers and, and uh, what we know about formation of planets and you know, the expanding universe and so forth. It's very hard to fit those into a 6,000 year timeline with a six day creation window. Very difficult to do that. This is a major source of doubt among young people and a cause for questioning the reliability and the authority of scripture. So, how old is the earth? How old is the earth? Now, based on observation of the earth and the universe, it appears to be mm, billions of years old. Well, many believe the Bible says that it all happened 6,000 years ago. Even if they don't believe the Bible, they believe that's what it says because that's what they've been told it says by other people who read the Bible. That 6,000 year window, where did it come from? Well, the 6,000 years actually comes from someone who went to the effort of adding up all the ages of all the, uh, you know, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so, and adding them all up and working backwards until they get to the first human parents, Adam and Eve, and this whole sequence of grandparents, great-grandparents, and great-great-great-great-grandparents uh, leads all the way back to the sixth day of creation, which we read in Genesis 1, verse 31. And the number of years, now it's not explicit. It's nowhere mentioned in Scripture. Uh, it could be more or less 6,000 years. Now, I personally believe the 6,000-year the number seems kind of reasonable. But the main point is this. Earth, planet Earth, existed before the six days mentioned in Genesis 1. 
planet Earth existed before that. So if we can tie back to Adam and Eve in 6,000 years, well, that's a completely different issue from talking about the age of the Earth. Why do I say that? Well, let's go to Genesis and take a look at what's there. Genesis 1 and uh, verses 1 and 2. Genesis 1, verses 1 through 2 say, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The planet, the material form of planet earth, was clearly in existence before verse 3. And verse 3 is where God said, let there be light. But in verses 1 and 2, we read about the planet's already there. It's already a formed entity. And uh, the remaining verses of Genesis 1 are basically describing the process of God setting everything in order, setting it right, appointing, well, this does this. This is its function. This is what this is for, um, ordaining or you could say renewing the face of the earth so that it was once again a beautiful life-sustaining environment which we live in and enjoy right now. When we look at Genesis 1, the real message found in this chapter, I've already alluded to, but the real message found in this chapter is what? Well, here's some points that I drew out that item by item, the material world which God created is good. It's good. Now that you might take for granted, but there are a lot of theories out there that people come up with trying to explain why there's evil in the world. And a lot of them kind of get back to this idea that, well, the material world, the physical world is evil. And if we could just get all spiritual, we would be able to escape evil. And God says, no, no, no. The world that I made is good. He looked at his creation and it is good. So matter itself, the body, the flesh, everything is not the source of evil. Another thing that's established in Genesis 1, that he, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God of Israel, the God you and I worship, the God of Jesus Christ, is the supreme authority who sets the boundaries. In Genesis 1, you know, God says, okay, the sea stops here, you know, this is sky, this is earth. He sets boundaries. God is the one who sets boundaries and declares the function and the purpose of all created things. This also applies to human beings as much as it applies to uh, sky or water or plants. It applies to you and me. You know, and we kind of talked a little bit about boundaries when that was mentioned with the Ten Commandments. Those are some boundaries that God establishes. But with Genesis 1, we're talking about more uh, primordial things. Another thing we learn in Genesis 1 is that he blesses the living things that he's created. If you read through and you read through the creation account, it's kind of noteworthy that 
God doesn't bless everything. I think they're all good, but God blesses plants. He blesses animals. He blesses human beings. Those things which are alive are blessed. Another thing we learn, human beings, man, woman, are set apart from the rest of the material creation. Separate, apart from, although at the same time a part of, set apart from material creation because they are made in His image. And they are endowed with spiritual qualities. And they are given authority to rule over everything on the planet. So these are some of the messages that we can get by reading Genesis 1. And they're very important messages. Okay, so what was going on prior to Genesis verses 1 and 2? We started there, we said the earth already existed. Well, there's a backstory there, folks. There's a lot of information. To find out what was going on, let's take a look at what some of the other scriptures in the Bible say. Go with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, and uh, let's read verses 1 through 3. They say, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. This is the real beginning. This is going back to what was happening before what we read about in Genesis. The real beginning goes back to before anything was created. It was God the Father and the Word. And that Word is the one who became Jesus Christ. That's made very clear in verse 14 of John chapter 1. We learn elsewhere in Scripture that it was through him that everything was made. And verse 3 says, Okay, the Word was God, was with God, and through him all things were made. And without him nothing was made that has been made. That's the real beginning. Now, turn to Job 38. And let's take a look at a few verses here. This is God speaking to Job. He's uh, sort of putting Job in his place here. Job's question, God's fairness, and having a dialogue with God. And we're breaking into the middle of a different conversation. But as Job is addressed by God, here's some of the stuff that he hears from his creator. God says in verse 4, Okay, Job, where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me. Tell me if you understand. So that's going back to this basic concept, God created all things. Now I'll drop down to verses 6 and 7. On what were its footings set, or who laid its cornerstone, while the morning stars sang together, and all the angels shouted for joy. Somewhere along the way, angelic beings were created. They too were with God when he made all the material stuff of the universe. 
whether that's the you know big bang or whatever i mean it was a big bang i suppose kind of like a fireworks show for the angels and they shouted for joy i don't know what part of it they saw how long it took what you know time frame this is talking about but they saw something pretty spectacular and i think they saw something very beautiful they saw the earth created as it says there these are the morning stars the sons of god the angels now what about these angels what were these angels doing before genesis 1 besides shouting for joy when they saw the earth created what were what were they up to well, we're going to talk about the angelic revolt. Something very bad happens, actually. To go into the angelic revolt, let's take a look at Ezekiel 28. And let's pick it up in verse 12 and read through verse 17. Verse 12, Son of man, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre and say to him, This is what the Sovereign Lord says. The King of Tyre is kind of used as a type for another ruler on the planet, Lucifer. And you can tell it's talking about Lucifer because of what it says about, here, uh, about him here. It says, You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. All right. You were in Eden the garden of God. This can't be talking about the king of Tyre. This is talking about Lucifer. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you. Carnelian, chrysolite, emerald, topaz, onyx, jasper, lapis lazuli, turquoise, beryl. Your settings and mountings were made of gold. And on the day you were created, they were prepared. And you were anointed as a guardian cherub an angelic being, for so I ordained you. And you were on the holy mountain of God, and you walked among the fiery stones, and you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until wickedness was found in you. And through your widespread trade you were filled with violence, and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God, and I expelled you, guardian cherub, you angelic being, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you down to the earth, and I made a spectacle of you before kings. So Lucifer in Eden indicates he was stationed somewhere on planet Earth. That's what it says. You were in Eden. I think he also had access to the throne room of God, but he had a station on earth. He had a role to play. He was doing something on earth. Now go with me to Isaiah 14. And let's look at verses 12 and 14. Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 14. How you have fallen from heaven, Lucifer, morning star, Son of the dawn, you have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens and I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit 
enthroned on the Mount of Assembly at the utmost heights of Mount Zephon, and I will ascend above the tops of the clouds, and I will make myself like the Most High. So Lucifer had a throne, which in Bible speak means he had a position of authority. And his desire was to exalt his own throne, his own position of leadership and authority above God who created all things, to basically overthrow God. But he was cut down to the ground. He was banished to earth. That's why I picked this picture here from, you know, boom! All right? <laughs> That's actually me, right? But you get the idea, right? Okay, so Luke 10, verse 18. Jesus referenced this uh, event. Luke 10, verse 18, just a quick reference from Christ here. Jesus says, I saw heaven fall like lightning from heaven. <clears throat> Something happened to this being who was trying to do some bad things. Jesus is referring to this same event which had taken place in the past. I saw this happen. Lucifer, the light bringer who had become Satan, the adversary, at this uh, occasion of his rebellion was cast from heaven to earth. Now Satan retains his authority on earth. He still has some significant influence on what's going on here. We're in Luke, go to uh, chapter four. And Luke four, verse five, says this. Jesus is here being tested in the wilderness. Before he begins his ministry, he basically has to have a showdown with Satan, which he does, and uh, Satan tempts him. And here's one of the things that Satan tempts him with. He offers him all the kingdoms of the earth, all the authority, all the thrones, everything. You know, you can be in charge of the whole shooting match, which, if you think about it, kind of implies that it was his to give, right? Verse uh, five and six. The devil led him, that's Jesus, up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me. And I can give to anyone I want to. And if you will worship me, it will all be yours. That's another message, you know, about the temptation of Christ, but it, it, for our purposes, it shows that Satan was still Im, an important, he was a force to be reckoned with on earth, okay? Um, let's see, go to John 12 and verse 31. Jesus said, uh, the voice was not for your ben was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world, and now the prince of this world will be driven out. So there's one of those scriptures that you can use, and it's multiple places. I chose John because we usually go to Ephesians, right? But here it is in another place. The prince of this world, he's got a day of reckoning coming. This is what Jesus is saying. 
The prince of the world is Satan. Uh, we're in John, go to uh, chapter 14, verse 30. It says, I will not say much more to you. And this is his prayer, you know, at that, the last night in the garden here before he's crucified. I will not say much more to you for the prince of this world is coming, but he has no hold over me. Again, he's referring to Satan as the prince of the world. Wow. Uh, let's see, one more in John chapter 16, verse 11. I use these again because they're a little different from the usual uh, Ephesians 2 verse 2 that we, we normally use. John 16, verse 11, the work of the Holy Spirit about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. So those are three places where Jesus is referring to the prince of this world, speaking of Satan. You could also look at Ephesians 2, verse 2. It's a good place. Uh, let's go to a, a really good one from Paul, which is 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. It says, even if our gospel is veiled and hidden, it is veiled to those who are perishing. For the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ. Revelation 12, verse 9 would be another good one. Who deceives the whole world? Satan deceives the whole world. God continues to allow Lucifer became the adversary, Satan, to retain his authority until the appointed time. His time will come, but it's not yet up. Matthew 8, verse 29. Jesus is uh, addressing some demons. He's going to cast out these demons from this guy. And the demons start talking to him. And what do they say to him? What do you want with us? Son of God, they shouted, have you come here to torment us before the appointed time? So they were kind of saying, hey, well, we've, we've still got time to mess with these people. Why are, you, uh, why are you casting us out? The appointed time has not yet come. They know there's an appointed time. We know there's an appointed time. Now, when Adam and Eve come on the scene, kind of getting back to Genesis one. When Adam and Eve come on the scene, they are showing up on, in a world where there's already been a lot of bad stuff happening. Satan's been cast down to the earth already. Boom. I don't know what damage or impact that had on the planet, but uh, Lucifer is cast back down and uh, he's disgraced, he's beaten. He's cast down and he's there on planet Earth when God brings Adam and Eve into the picture. The Garden of Eden is, in effect, it's sort of like an outpost in the adversary's territory. Man who God ordained and gave dominion over all things is actually sort of a competitor of Satan. If God gives, God says, okay, human beings, I'm going to give you dominion over the earth. Well, I would think that Satan is listening to this thinking, wait a minute, <laughs> that's me. I'm still in charge around here. So we're sort of a comp uh, competition for Satan, if you will. 
And people talk about this great spiritual battle, you know, that Satan is battling with God. Um, no, God is not battling with Satan. It is not a contest. Jesus showed that. The demons and Satan had to do whatever he said. It's not a matter of them clashing swords. The real battle is between Satan and human beings. The battle is between Satan and mankind. But that's, again, another story. Well, when Adam is given dominion over the earth, I mean, Satan's right there. He's listening, he's hearing this. He, he's there within the garden, a serpent in the garden, and he's ready to reassert his authority over the planet. And he will do so by trickery and deceit, which is his most potent weapon. And, I mean, from his perspective, Earth is his realm and he is not going to give it up before he has to, before the appointed time. So what condition was the Earth in before Genesis 1? Well, Genesis 1 verse 2 tells us that the world was, let me go back there and read it. I'm reading from the NIV. says, now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. All right? Now, when you go in and you dig around and you look at the words that are there, formless and empty, there are a pair of Hebrew words, tohu and bohu. Tohu, bohu. It sounds weird to us, but it makes, you know, it sounds perfectly normal in, in, in Hebrew, right? Those words mean without purpose, vain, pointless chaotic. And uh, you can do a word study on those, and I think it's a, a worthwhile to look at those words. I don't know, who uses a computer program or a computer application to look at words in the Bible? Does anyone do that? You have, yeah, eSword is one I use. You use that? Okay. That's a really good one. I have one right on my phone where I can look these things up. But if you go in and you look at the words, a concordance would also be a way of doing it. You look in uh, at these words, and then you can find some other places in Scripture where these actual words are found. And there aren't many of them. There's only a, like a handful of them. Okay? One place would be Isaiah 34, verse 11. Another would be Jeremiah 4, verse 23. And these are verses that talk about uh, they use the word tohu to describe a destroyed and desolate city after an army's come in and just bang, like you know you got the the over in Ukraine they're bombing and they're just blowing everything up and if you've seen any of the photographs after they're going back and forth and bombing and shooting there's nothing left it's just rubble it's tohu and bohu it's chaos it's it's destroyed so an, another way we could look at Genesis there, Genesis uh, 1 verse 2, is to say, now the earth was, or possibly became, formless and empty. Let me see uh, what mine says. Yeah, now the earth was, you could also say the earth became. All right? There's two ways you could look at it. But either way, whether you say the earth was or the earth became a mess, chaos, broken, desolate, um, chaos and disorder and purposeless is not a characteristic of God the Creator. 
go to 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 33. Paul's speaking of a different subject here, but brings out an important principle. He's talking about orderliness in church worship service, and he says this, For God is not the author of, or the creator of, or the God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. God is not the author of confusion. God does not create confusion. God creates order. Now remember, we read that verse about the angels, and what did they do when they saw earth? They shouted for joy, right? They shouted for joy when they saw the earth. It was not desolate. It was not chaotic. It was not something that had been destroyed it was beautiful. It only became chaotic and confused. Go back to Isaiah and let's take a look at chapter 45. Isaiah 45 and verse 18. For this is what the Lord says, He who created the heavens, He who is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. He did not create it to be empty or have no purpose, but formed it to be inhabited. And he says, I am the Lord, I am the creator, and there is no other. Earth was created to be a habitat for human beings, for men and women like you and me. And Earth's purpose, this is very important. I know I've brought this up a number of times recently. I think it's very important though, because we are constantly being bombarded with a message that says there is no purpose to anything. The Earth has a purpose. The Earth's purpose is to be a uh, material place for human beings to live while going through this material phase of our development, which is a spiritual creation. And our goal is to go beyond the flesh, which we're in right now. But we are in the flesh right now. And it was created for a purpose. So we go through this material phase, if you will, of development, leading to, ultimately, spiritual rebirth, born into the family of God as a spirit being. But in the present, we're in a material world. And we are flesh and blood. But it has a purpose. And God created the earth with a purpose for a goal. How or why did the earth become void or waste or purposeless? How did this terrible stuff happen? If the earth was created beautiful, but then we read in Genesis 1 verse 2 that it was without form, it was tohu and bohu, it had been messed up. How did that come to pass? Well, let's just reason from Scripture. Let's reason from what we've already looked at in Scripture, okay? We've kind of looked at the concept that the actual creation of the planet took place before 
the six days we read about in Genesis 1. We have also gone through the angels' presence, that they were there and shouted with joy when the material earth was created. And it was created beautiful. We have also established that Lucifer, the guardian angel, cherub, had been given a throne, if you will, a, you know, a position of authority on earth. We've also looked at the reality script, the scriptural reality that Satan rebelled against God and attempted to grab that supreme authority for himself, to exalt his throne above the Creator. We know that Lucifer was cast down to the earth when he became the adversary of God. And so he got, that's what Satan means, God's enemy, the adversary. And we know that Satan was ready and waiting in Eden to trick and deceive human beings into sin. Now the Genesis account does not provide us with all the details, but the Bible as a whole fills in other parts of the story. You know, the missing pieces are given in other places. And we've gone through these scriptures, and I think we've established some of these points, which tell us of Satan's rebellion against God that resulted in being cast down back to earth. One more on that would be Revelation 12. Revelation 12, verse 7 through 9. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you, and he is filled with fury, knowing that his time is short. He has only until the appointed time. Could it be that when Satan was cast down to the earth, that, like I showed you that picture of the meteorite, and now you've probably read about meteorites, and people will say, you know, if a meteorite of significant size ever hit planet earth, it would create so much destruction that we wouldn't be able to have any vegetation or plant life for years. Could it be that Satan being cast down to earth created a really bad situation? That something terrible happened to the earth? It's possible. There are a lot of questions. and I'm not saying that that's the answer. Scripture's obviously not clear about that. Other great questions come to my mind. Well, how long did the angels exist before man was created? Don't know. How long ago was Lucifer given authority over planet Earth? Don't know. <laughs> How long did it take Lucifer to persuade as many as a third of the angels to rebel along with him against God? Don't know. Could it, <laughs> could it happen overnight? It could have taken a long, long time. We don't know. We do not know. But for spirit beings like angels, aging is of no consequence. So if it was a billion years, okay. If it was a million years, okay. If it was a thousand years, okay. We don't know. But they don't age. They're immortal. So the duration, it could be anything. Are the uh, geological and fossil findings evidence of 
God's preparation of the earth for mankind? I mean, how long was it, how long did it take to prepare the earth to become beautiful? We don't know. Are the, the you know, skeletons that people dig up of, of uh, like hom I call them hominids, but you know, Neanderthal or you know, mankind that existed before Homo sapiens, are those perhaps prototypes that God developed as he was creating Adam? We don't know. Did Lucifer's authority that he had before Adam mean that he had a role in assisting God in preparing the earth? I mean, if he was given a throne on the earth and he had authority, what was he doing? We don't know, and the scriptures don't say. Could his role in this have anything to do with some of the things that we see kind of woven into the you know, way things or way created things operate? You know, sometimes you'll see biologists, they like to uh, say, well, you know, creation is, is not optimally designed. I don't know if you've ever heard that, but they'll say, well, like, you've got your appendix, you know. Well, that's, why would that be designed that way? Suboptimal design, you know. Um, okay. There's certain, you know, kind of waste that you see in the created world around us. I think it all works together for God's purposes, but perhaps those are things that were created by the angelic beings who were given authority over the earth. We don't know. There's lots of ways you can think about these things. And I guess what I'm trying to get at is you can come at these discoveries and things we dig up and things we look at and you can say, there's no God. And you'll look at them in a certain way and you'll say, well, that, yeah, that, that, that shows there's no God. The fact that you have an appendix. Or you can look at them and say, you know, I don't know exactly what this is there for. But I do know that a lot of stuff happened before what we read in Genesis 1. I don't know all the details, and it's not important, is it? What's important, and we have our plates full with what's on the table right now, which is dealing with the purpose for our lives and the present purpose of the earth, which is to be a place for us to do this, and the present purpose for our lives is to grow in grace and knowledge. These are fascinating questions. They're worth pondering. And I think if we can ponder these things in a positive, biblical way, we don't have the answers. But I think we can look at science and we can look at the discoveries of science and we don't have to be overwhelmed by them and they don't have to create doubt if we understand what Scripture's trying to say and what it's not saying. And its focus for us, again, is on our present purpose, which is to grow in grace and knowledge, to become like Jesus Christ and to attain unto resurrection to eternal life. Go to 1 Corinthians 13. And uh, let's take a look at verses 9 13. This is a part of the love chapter, but this is the part of the love chapter that kind of gets into some different stuff. In verse, after going through love and its importance, 
which really, you know, if you think about priorities, that should be our priority, and hopefully it is. Verse 9, after discussing love and the important spiritual development, Paul says, for right now, we know in part, and we prophesy in part. Paul is saying, I don't know everything. And I teach, but I don't teach everything because I don't know everything. And if it was applicable to Paul, it certainly applicable to me. I don't know everything and I can't preach all truth because I don't know all truth. Verse 10, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child and I thought like a child and I reasoned like a child. And when I became a man, I put away childish things from behind, or I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection, as in a mirror, but then we shall see face to face. Now I know, in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. But these three remain. So he's saying, I, I, don't, I don't know much, but I know this. This is what's important. Faith, hope, and love. Right? Believing in God having the right goal out there and interacting with other people and with God in the right way. And the greatest of these is love. Earth renewed and restored. That's what's happening in Genesis 1. The earth is renewed, the earth is restored so that it can get back to its purpose. Let's go to a different place, though, to look at that concept. Let's go to Psalm 104. Psalm 104. And uh, let's pick it up then in verse 24 and read through verse 30. It says, How many are your works, Lord? In wisdom you made them all, and the earth is full of your creatures. There's the sea, vast and spacious, teeming with creatures beyond number, living things, both large and small. There the ships go to and fro, and the Leviathan, which you formed to frolic there. All creatures look to you to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up, and when you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. But when you hide your face, they are terrified, and when you take away their breath, they die and return to dust." When you send your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. You renew the earth. That is what God was up to, renewing the earth. Now, this isn't the only ancient earth explanation that's out there. Other people have ways of looking at it that try and account for the uh, things that we see in geology and paleontology and so forth. So this isn't the only one that you'll ever hear. But it does seem to make the most sense based on other biblical statements. And that's where we come from. Remember, I, I think I did this sermon here talking about how we reason from Scripture. Right? I did that one? Yeah. How we reason from Scripture and we use the Bible to interpret the Bible. To me, this is the best explanation using scriptural statements. And this explanation also doesn't conflict 
with the observations of, of science. It accepts the literal 24-hour days that you see in Genesis 1. Yeah. But it talks about God's, what God's trying to accomplish there, which is to ordain, declare, and tell us this is this. I set the boundaries between this and that. I created all these things. Here's what they do. Here's their purpose. Here's how they fit into the grand scheme of things. And at the same time, this allows for fossils and dinosaurs and geological rock formations and you know, proto-humans and uh, all those other things, all those other relics of an age prior to the record of Genesis 1 and the advent of human beings who are special and who are endowed with a spiritual component within them which makes them created in God's image. And I think that's the thing that was totally new. That had not been on the scene before. Human creatures made in the image of God because they were given a spirit component so that they could be in God's image. A believer in scripture doesn't have to be afraid of science. And in fact, to a believer, these things that we find and see and hear about in science um, can be wonderful things to think about, the, you know, the, the power of God and the creative power of God and his handiwork as a creator. A believer basically can look at the same data with a different set of assumptions. And instead of looking only at the material stuff of the universe and then stubbornly choosing to see only random collisions of molecules, atoms, protons, quarks, a believer looks at the same facts from the perspective of purpose and meaning. And in Genesis 1, God tells us what we need to know about the created universe. The universe is his. He made it. He controls it. He sustains it. And he brings forth life on it. And he blesses that life. And especially that he created it as a home for mankind to work out his plan for bringing many children to glory in his family as fully formed spirit beings blessed with the gift of eternal life. <laughs>